electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, why stocks are going much higher, according to one big-time fund manager who oversees more than $2.5 trillion in assets. A big call with us today. We'll debate it with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour are Jim Labenthal, Pete Najeri, and Brent Talkington is managing partner with Requisite Capital Management. Kevin O'Leary is chairman of O'Shares ETFs. It's good to see everybody on this Friday. Let's check the market, see where we stand. Stocks on pace to snap a three-week winning streak. Nevertheless, our headline guest today says the market is going significantly higher, possibly even before the election. BlackRock's Rick Reeder joining us now. Rick, welcome back. It's good to see you today. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's a big call. What's behind it? No, I mean, well, I mean, before the election, I think is uh, it may not happen. In fact, you, you know, there's some interesting things in the options market that could keep the market uh, down for a bit of time. But I do think people are underestimating, A, you've got a good economy with a tremendous amount of stimulus coming in. And, uh, and I think that will continue to drive the market higher. Plus, You've got a dynamic where the, the Fed has made much of the fixed income market uninvestable with treasuries where they are today, with agency mortgages where they are today. When you take the earnings yield of the equity market, the free cash flow yield of the equity market, well into the 4% off of uh, next year's earnings, um, that, that is a pretty attractive asset class, and I think it'll propel the market higher. So, I mean, election uncertainty doesn't really matter much in the, in the near term. Um, stimulus talks, negotiations may happen, may not. How, how does that factor into this forecast? I mean, it's a big call that you make. You're the one who suggests in, in our notes today that it, it possibly could happen or at least start before the election. Yeah, I mean, so listen, I mean, the election, the election does matter. But if you think about it, and I think what people have started to realize, I think since the last time I was on your show, we've been pretty enthusiastic about markets. What people have to realize is you're going to get more fiscal stimulus in the system. And, and I think people underestimate when you put $2 trillion, like we have already had stimulus in the system, you're talking about almost 10% of GDP. Then when you grow the monetary base, you create a velocity to, uh, to growth and you grow the monetary base. It's pretty hard for, for you not to get nominal GDP that's not significantly higher into next year. So we, we, we think we're going to get over 5% nominal GDP next year. So what happens, and there's a big debate about what happens if you get a blue wave, et cetera. I think there's a timing to taxes that is significant. And quite frankly, the system can absorb a bit more debt. The system can absorb more stimulus. And I think that's why you'll propel growth higher into next year. And I think that's why the equity market, I mean, the cash flow, you even talk about the earnings numbers. I mean, they're impressive. You think about the dynamic that people are operating within today, an unemployment rate as high as it is. You're getting some pretty impressive numbers, not universally, but generally some pretty good numbers in uh, in what is still a tough environment. Yeah. If there's a you know, if you want to call it controversial 
uh, side to your call today. It's when you say when you look at rates, free cash flow multiples, equities Mm -hmm. are as cheap as they've ever been. I think a lot of people would take issue with that, Rick. (laughs) I I think uh, I think most people take issue with it. And, you know, you hear all the time, you know, people focus on P.E. ratio and P.E. ratio is a useful metric. But, you know, when we finance real estate or you finance a receivables pool and you think about any other form of sophisticated financing, you know, what you think about is your cash flow that comes in and your cash flow relative to the cost to finance it. When companies today have an ability to finance themselves at extraordinarily cheap levels, it allows them to do M&A, it allows them to do CapEx, it allows them to do R&D. And you create what is a really different dynamic. People underestimate the discount rate. I mean, the people don't under- underestimate the real estate market, but I think in the equity market they do. And it's part of why I think the equity market is not on the true metrics that you look at and all the right metrics you look at. I don't think the equity market is high at all. Well, one of the reasons you're, you're balancing that is against where rates are and saying that low rates, and look, it's a case that, that a lot of people have made over the last many years, where equities are cheap relative to where interest rates are. You got the backstop of the Fed, et cetera. 84 basis points, though, in the 10-year. I know it's not high. It is higher than where it was. And what happens if rates <laughs> get closer to one? Does that sort of upset your, your mm-hmm. thesis at all? So first of all, companies don't borrow off, off of treasuries. And I think you know, there's a big focus on, and I always think like when you hit, I remember your shows for years, when you, when you talk about nodes of the treasury market, they are, they are significant. I think they're more significant from an optics point of view. Companies don't borrow off the, off the 10-year note. They borrow off of where is the high-yield market, where is the investor-grade market, where is the loan market. And as long as they're being able to finance at these levels, which are incredible, I mean, some companies, I mean, the big companies five years and in are, are able to finance at, at 50 basis points. That is incredible. You can buy your stock back. You think about weighted average cost of capital for a company. If you can finance at levels like that, uh, you know, if we move up 15, 20 basis points, 40 basis points. And listen, I think I think the back end of the yield curve will probably elevate over the next uh, next few months. A bit part of it because I think economic growth is, is good and the Treasury has to issue a tremendous amount of debt. Mm-hmm. But boy, if you take... You know, the markets will focus on it if rates move up significantly, but I think they're not going to move up that dramatically to affect the equity market. Bart, that's a good headline. Um, you know, I want to bring the gang in, which, which, is, which I said is with me today, but do you have an S&P target in mind? So, I mean, we don't put out actual targets, but, you know, I've, I've laid out Let's just do it for kicks. return for Let's next for year. <laughs> I think, listen, I, I'm going to say you can hit, Next year, the equity market could be up another eight to ten percent, and potentially a bit more than that. And so, you could put that multiple, put that multiplier on the current S and P five hundred. So, I, you know, I think I think that is the level, and it's part of why I think people can generate good returns next year using equities, some alternatives, and some yielding assets and fixed income. All right, let's kick this around, uh, Kevin O'Leary, Mister Wonderful. What do you think about Rick's prediction here? Um, do you agree with it? Actually, Rick said something that, I, that is the essence of the whole equity conversation, talking about AAA companies being able to finance their debt and credit at 50 and 60 basis points. So if you're an institutional manager and you're bogey 6%, and I'm in that situation, and I, I get offered 65 basis point paper for five years, why would I ever buy that when I can buy the stock of the same company that's issuing that and get a 1.7 to 2% yield. That is why he's right about equities. I have no other option. 
There is no other choice. There is no fixed income market. That market is so overvalued, so extended, so ridiculously expensive that if we ever get inflation as a result of pouring $2 trillion, whichever uh, you know, party wins the White House, it, it could have a, the, the risk in the market is not equities. It's fixed income. Wow. And we don't talk about that enough. Well, well let, let's is, do it, it because, a, I mean, it Rick is the CIO of Global <laughs> Fixed Income at the, at the world's largest asset manager. So uh, do you want to you take issue with that, Rick? Uh, he's going right at your livelihood. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a tough career call there. The, um, listen, I mean, the Treasury market is not, is not, I mean, I think next year Treasury market will generate a negative return. I think the agency mortgage market is probably going to give you no, no return next year. There are parts of fixed income, the yielding asset classes, parts of the high yield market, the credit markets, uh, that you can generate still some yield. But listen, I think the underlying point is right, that fixed income is as an asset class is going to, people are going to take less fixed income holdings. The one thing that I think people underestimate, by the way, I just to clarify one thing Kevin said, it's not even triple A companies that can borrow 50, 60 basis points. It's single A companies or even trip some triple B's that well under 1%. But I mean, listen, I think one thing people have to underestimate, have to, have to factor in, there is still huge pension insurance bid for fixed income assets. So that, so they'll be kept at a reasonable level for a period of time. Yeah. Uh, Bryn Talkington has a question for you, Rick. Uh, Bryn? Yeah, yeah. Great to see you. I think, first of all, on fixed income, I think everyone needs to remember this is a math equation. So some simple math, if the 10-year is at 80 basis points, has a duration of nine years, if interest rates moved up one full percentage points, investors are down a little over 8%. So it's just math. And so I agree with Kevin that the, the fixed income is picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. I do think it's interesting, though, and I would, I would never go against what, what Rick says on equities because not only does, you know, Rick cover $2.5 trillion, but I was looking at BlackRock's earnings the other day. BlackRock as a firm has $7.5 trillion in assets. So between, you know, Rick and his lens on buying equities, the Fed also has $7 trillion in assets. They're, in essence, telling you to buy equities. I think that someone dismissing that is, is short-sighted. So yeah, but I, mean, um, hey, I would definitely the, agree with Rick and buy equity. The, the size the of someone, is a different the, question, though. The, the size of one's wallet doesn't necessarily <laughs> make them always right, though, Bryn. Well, right? I mean, do you, well, yeah, but I'm just, well, I mean, you, that's, you that's agree not necessarily with the call? true, though. You, you agree with the call? I mean, yeah. is, if, if, oh, you yeah, do, if you do, if you agree with Rick yeah. and you agree with BlackRock, then now's the time to buy stocks, regardless of the well, short-term so, noise yeah. over election and stimulus. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we already own stocks, right? And I think everyone on the panel already owns stocks. And so I do think that, I mean, we're down here in Texas. You know, I think Houston has 26% of the oil and gas jobs here. So, you know, definitely last night is, doesn't, doesn't swallow well in terms of fracking and what have you. But I do think, I mean, the election's in two weeks. We're going to get clarity. That being said, monetary stimulus, stimulus and massive fiscal stimulus from whoever gets elected is coming soon to a theater near us. And to say that we're going to get all this stimulus from fiscal and monetary, and we're going to get a recovery, and when we get a vaccine, to say that equities don't go higher, I think is, I don't understand how that would happen. Yeah. I mean, you do have to take into consideration, though, where multiples are, Rick, right? I mean, you've had multiple expansion Totally. Uh, earnings have to be good enough to justify those moves or you're going to get come downs in stocks. Uh, you've seen it in some of the highest flying so, of tech names. <clears throat> yeah, so I, 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 mean, I agree with that, Scott. By the way, just so I'm not painted as, a, as nothing can go wrong, 
I do think there is. I mean, you have risk of a hung election. You have a significant amount of potential disappointment on vaccine, which, by the way, I don't think is a base case. So you could trade down 5 to 8% from here. I'm not saying that you can't, the market can't trade down. I'm saying if you have an intermediate term perspective on where we're going and the generate return, I do think the market's going higher. Listen, I'm going to come back to my point around, you know, I think PE ratio is an interesting statistic, but I don't think it is as interesting as, you know, free cash flow generation. I don't think it's as interesting as the fact that commerce is shifting. I mean, you look at the explosive growth that you're getting in some companies. And, and Scott, I said it's one thing that, that I think people are missing. There's a super cycle that's taking place in technology like we've never seen before in that these companies not only are growing, not only can they access scale quickly, but they're free cash flow generative almost from day one for a lot of companies, which you don't see, you haven't seen in prior cycles. And you think about how other businesses grow, they got to reinvest in CapEx, they got to put money into logistics, into employment, et cetera. I think it's a really different cycle of commerce where you're seeing businesses that can get scale very quickly, very efficiently, and, and generate cash flow much faster than anything we've ever seen in history. And I just think when people say it's a tech bubble, I get, I get that there are some valuations that are high. There are some companies I am impressed by how high they trade. But I actually don't I don't agree with the thesis that you're not going to see continued growth of commerce and technology and it reflected in equity valuations. Not to mention, Pete, the, you know, look, the case that you've been making is this pent up demand idea. And again, you have to get past the noise of the next few weeks and you get closer to a vaccine and ultimately a vaccine, we hope, uh, sometime next year, not too late in the year, we all we all hope. And then you could have a real ramp in economic activity. And then obviously that would be good for stocks. The real question is, how far ahead of that do you want to get as an investor, Pete? Yeah, I, no, that's a great question, Scott. And I, I would also tag on to, Rick was alluding to the spiders, obviously, and the movement to the upside potentially sitting out there. And I can tell you this, Rick, I'm seeing huge, massive call buying in the SPY. And I, and I see it day in and day out. And they're not just in November. They're not just near term. They're going out to January. So we're seeing some bullish uh, bullishness out there as well. But I'm kind of curious about a couple of areas that are actually one of them that's been working all year and nobody ever talks about materials for the most part. But take a look at what's going on with copper and, and, and steel and iron ore and some of these various names, whether it's Freeport, Freeport MacMoran or, or, or U.S. Steel or Cliffs or whatever. They're all on the move, and they have been not just for the last month, which they have, but even year to date, they've done extremely well for the most part and are in positive territory moving. Is that something that's sustainable? Is there still room to the upside there? And what about the financials? Is the financial area finally an investable area, in your opinion, going forward? <laughs> We've had a couple of days that have been pretty solid recently in the financial yeah, world. Yeah, Rick, I mean, financials leading today to Pete's point. Rates going up, not a bad thing. What do you yeah. think? So, by the way, you know, we're looking at just looking at a company like Cap One Financial. I mean, some of the some of the numbers are pretty good. And, and, and you know, it's obviously we're not going to get a significant rate increase, but it does help if you get a little bit of a, a rate increase there. Listen, I think if the economic paradigm is better going forward and companies don't have, I mean, listen, the banks have reserved very aggressively. And if you believe that charge-offs are, are not uh, as significant as I, as, as I think that will be the case, that we're not going to be as significant as people have anticipated, financials are a reasonable valuation. By the way, one of the great, and Pete's great at this, one of the interesting things around financials, the volatility is extremely high in, uh, in, the, in their stocks, in their options. And so you can own some of the financial self-covered calls against it, calls against it, and you can create some fantastic uh, earnings levels or, or yield levels. I mean, you know, with the 10-year note at, uh, at 85 basis points, you can buy some of the banks 
get paid the dividend yield. By the way, some in Europe as well get paid the dividend yield, and, and some of the banks in the volatility market trade at 35 40% vol, that you can create a really nice structure by owning them and writing calls against them. You know, the, the other thing you said a few minutes ago that I think is interesting is, is you made a pretty big case for tech still working, but yet you're trimming back some of your technology exposure, or you would suggest that that is a good thing to do you've reduced a good amount of yeah. it. So how does that square with making a big case yeah. for it, but yet in your own right, scaling back a bit? Yeah. So where we've scaled back is some of the big tech. And so some of the platform names, you know, the big four or five, the, the multiples have expanded significantly. By the way, it's also another good place to sell calls against. As Pete said, some of the buying that has taken place in some of the big tech has been extraordinary for 15, 20% upside that people are paying that sort of volatility after their multiples just expanded like they did. So we've been, we've sold down a fair amount of those hmm. semis, software, not, by the way, not, uh, not all, uh, some of the uh, semi equipment companies or manufacturing companies, um, I think still think have real upside. Anything around cloud, we think has significant upside, but the big tech, and uh, I think I've been on your show for years talking about Tesla and some some other names. Some of those, their multiples are are full in some of those bigger, high-profile names. But the other tech, I think, I think has upside. I mean, you know, Jim Labenthal, you talk about multiples expanding in some of the big tech names that Rick's talking about. You know, I think most of the, you know, the, the Facebooks, the Apples, Microsoft. You're talking about you know 30 plus times at this point, which are. You know, not not cheap necessarily, and you know Amazon has obviously much higher than that, hundred whatever times that 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 stock currently trades. What about that idea, Jim Labenthal? Well, maybe yeah, it's time because next question, week's Scott, because next week is Judgment Week on a lot of these big names, right? With their earnings. Look, th this is this for me is the exact question that I wanted to ask Rick. So thank you for this because thirty times, Scott, that doesn't phase me. Not in this low interest rate environment, and that's where Microsoft is. That's where Apple is. But here's the thing. I said in this low interest rate environment, that's the sine qua non. So I, we all know that housing's been so important for the economic recovery. Can the Fed allow interest rates to go higher from here? Is there a natural level, maybe it's 1% on the 10-year, <clears throat> where the Fed says, nope, we're not letting this go anymore because we need housing? If that's the case, you know, that's a major support for this market. But, Rick, I'd really love to know if you think there's a line in the sand for the 10-year as, as far as the Fed goes. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So, you know, I think there is an implicit line. I think that 1%, I don't know whether that's just optics or otherwise. I think there is, there's a lot that factors into it. I mean, if it's six months from now and the economy is doing extremely well, that'll be different. I think that's generally around the right range. But like you said, the housing market is critically important. The Fed's buying $40 billion a month of agency mortgages. Uh, the Fed has kept the mortgage rate maybe you know, there are not enough mortgages actually for the Fed to purchase. I think what's going to happen next year is the Fed, the Fed's going to buy more treasuries because the true U.S. Treasury has to issue so many of them. I think they'll probably scale down the more the amount of mortgages they're buying, but the mortgage rate isn't going to go very high. But that's something like you say, they are very focused on that. Today, the mortgage rate is attracting. I mean, look at what's happening in the housing market. The numbers are explosive. Um, so the Fed's going to keep an eye on it. I think they can let rates migrate a bit higher and don't have to purchase as many agency mortgages. But they've got an eye. They've certainly got an eye on it, and uh, and are not going to get rate, let rates get very high. Love the conversation, Rick. Thanks for the time today. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. All right. We'll see you soon. That's Rick Reeder.
BlackRock. All right, let's talk, Jim, about Intel. Coming to you because I mentioned on Twitter that I, I needed your, your view today. Um, I don't know how to describe this thing other than, I mean, it's been such a dog. And it's down 11% plus now. The CEO was on the network within the last hour. Bob Swan was unable in any way, shape, or form to turn the stock performance around. What are you doing with your Intel position, Jim? I and I know our viewers want to know. I'm selling. I'm selling. And uh, kind of breaks my heart, but let's talk about this, okay? Um, operational management is the issue here, and I'm sorry, I don't like to take a shot at Mr. Swan, but first the 10 nanometer production was delayed, that was two years ago, now 7 nanometers, but the killer today is the gross margins. It's just, you know, you've got sales really quite high, gross margins are primarily and almost solely under, gross, under uh, management control, so I, I, that's three strikes and you're out. I'm sure, you know, somebody would say, well, Jimmy, you should have done this three months ago. This has been a seven-year investment. During that time frame, it's beat the S&P 500. So I was willing to give them rope with which to hang themselves. And it really breaks my heart, but they have hung themselves. And I, I, it's just too hard. There's other easier way to make, make money going forward from here than Intel. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been such an underperformer relative to the S&P on, you know, so many different metrics that you want to look at, not to mention how dramatically underperformed uh, it has to AMD. I mean, I could read you the numbers. They're so gaudy. Uh, AMD versus Intel, it's, it's almost embarrassing. Um, Pete, you continue to hold Intel or, or no? Yeah, I... I do. This is about the levels of the last time, Scott, when the, uh, when the stock got hit so bad after it had gotten up towards the 60s and sold off towards 48. And this is about, essentially about the levels where I thought it made sense to buy it once again. It was too loved probably at 60 and too hated, I thought, at 48. I'm starting to waver a little bit on the too, uh, too, mu too much of a hate going on because they just aren't executing. To Jim's point, they have had the opportunities. Yes, the earnings came in basically in line and the revenues were okay, but... Data center is where the growth is, and they're just not executing, and that's a problem. And they didn't execute last quarter. So there's a combination of things going on here that are, are, are negatives enough to make me question whether or not I'm going to hold this for very much longer. For now, I'm going to hold it, and I'm going to continue to use, because Rick Reeder was so right. It's not just in the financials, but in across the, the, the markets right now, Scott, the opportunities that I can use with derivatives against the stock has been absolutely extraordinary, like nothing I have seen in a very long period of time, and it's been sustained. So if I can continue to sell options against this Intel position, then I'm going to continue to hold on. If I'm not able to get enough implied volatility selling against it, I'm not going to do it and not going to hold it any longer because I'm as disappointed as Jim is, but I'm not ready to actually give it up just yet. I still think there's something there, but their execution is obviously a huge uh, problem right now, and I can't figure out why they haven't been able to do it. I, I, I just don't get it, but they are getting beat. It's whether it's NVIDIA, AMD, whomever it is they're competing against, they are getting beat right now. They're still big. They're still massive. They probably concentrate way too much on buying back their own stock and not enough on what they need to do to execute more properly going forward. And maybe some of that is investment. Yeah, you have, you have company and the not wanting to throw in the towel yet. Jenny Harrington's on the news line with us, of course, one of our own investment committee members. Jenny, did you see enough? Are you getting out of Intel? Not at all. The only thing I regret here is not buying it today and when we bought it in the spring. If I could buy it today and initiate a new position, I'd be happy to. The way I'm looking at this is that there's so much short-termism on the numbers today. When I think back to some of the best investments we've made, they've been at points like this. So we bought 
Target, for example, the day Amazon announced Whole Foods and there wasn't a positive report to be had. We bought Qualcomm the day after Brexit. There wasn't a positive report to be had. And those were very, very long-term focused investments. We're the same with Intel right now. So be it if there's a rough patch. In our whole holding period, which from here on will probably be three years plus, I'm quite certain we'll make money, and I'm quite certain that we'll look back on this and see it as a rough patch that they emerge from quite profitably. They make a ton of money, and they'll figure out a way back to growth. Yeah, but they think, I mean, you know, there are some who are going to make the case that the key parts of the business may be in fundamental decline. And that's why they're unlike the Qualcomm's, which you mentioned, which are still players in 5G and other areas, and then Target, which is hard to make a comparison. It seems apples and oranges. But you Le know what? Yeah. Sorry. Back then, those were the same arguments that were being made for Qualcomm and for Target. And with this, so maybe their manufacturing is in decline. And if they do decide that it is, at least on the call, we heard they're being flexible. And maybe they do say, hey, you know what? We don't have an edge here anymore. We're going to transfer the manufacturing to Taiwan Semiconductor. That would be a hugely bullish thing for, Ta for Intel. And we think that there would be a lot of upside that came out of that. Yeah, but the, and data, being the, data, center, the data center, though, it, it was bad. Um, this is Stacey Rascon. He's the number one rated analyst mm -hmm. in the space who covers it. Uh, don't think that it can't get worse, he says. Gross margins missed hugely. Data center ASPs and margins collapsed. While we thought last quarter's call was bad, last night's was potentially even worse as fundamentals are now deteriorating at an alarming pace. Reiterate, underperform. You know I have a great amount of respect for you, Jenny, and, and all that you do and how successful you've been. But how can you justify saying some of the positive things that you did when the evidence would suggest otherwise. Well, let, let's take a look at Goldman's report, for example. So Goldman still has their sell. And, and I don't know if Stacy's numbers went up too, but Goldman's report still has a sell. But if you read through that whole report, they actually revised their 2022 numbers up in that. So I think we just need to see it play out. And yeah, short term, it's ugly. Long term, this is a really powerful company. And I, I'm betting on the management being able to get things back on track in a but, positive way. And that's the other part of it, too, is that, you know, I'm not sure what kind of time frames we're talking about. You know, it's right. hard to argue that somebody has short termism if they've been in the name for five years, for example. That stock, Intel's up 38 percent over that period. That's half the S&P. AMD over that period of time is up 3,500 percent. All right, if you want to go short-termism and go three years, Intel's down 7 percent over three years. S&P's up 35. AMD's up 470. I would say your starting point needs to start now, though. And, and you, I think you've got AMD that's trading at, what, like 100 times earnings. You've got Intel that's trading at 10 times earnings. I don't think AMD will be able to sustain the magnitude of growth that they've had. Intel, there's just, you know, and I know this is my repetitive argument, there's just nothing in the expectations. I said this three days ago. I was wrong. I thought expectations were low enough that they'd be easy to beat. They're not. Give me another quarter or two. Um, but right now, my spirit isn't broken on the expectation that they're going to get this right and find a way to grow and succeed. You're good for calling in and making your case. I so much appreciate it. Jenny, have a good weekend. <laughs> we'll we'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys. All right. That's Jenny Harrington. Coming up, by the way, next week, it's a huge week for big tech. Earnings on deck, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Twitter, more. We'll do that in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more.
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. In Colorado, the blaze named the East Troublesome Fire has expanded to more than 170 acres from just 25,000 in one day. Residents nearby are being told to evacuate to get out of the way of the fast-moving fire. A new study suggests stay-at-home orders did help reduce the spread of COVID-19. Researchers at the University of Alabama at Birmingham estimate that without them, as the pandemic was starting, case rates would have more than tripled and fatalities would have been 22 percent higher. After months of protests and debate, a Confederate monument was removed from downtown Huntsville, Alabama. It will be relocated in a cemetery where Confederate soldiers are buried. You are up to date. That's the news update. Scott, back to you. All right, Sue, appreciate that. Thank you. The investment committee making many moves today. Let's talk some stocks. All right, Bryn, you're up first. You bought Coca-Cola. You sold Southwest, which really interesting. I want to talk to you about that. And you sold Goldman. But tell me why you bought Coca-Cola. So I want to continue to put together a basket of recovery names that, you know, as we get through the election, as we look to next year, these companies do really well. And so Coke, you know, had earnings yesterday. They met expectations. They're not giving guidance as they shouldn't. But I think Coke, it's around a $50 stock. It's high before COVID. It was around 58. I think a year from now, it can go back there. It's got well over a 3% dividend. And they just continue to do the right things. They're investing in their business. They want to continue to do consumer-focused M&A. They're going to increase the dividend. And then finally, share repurchases, which is last, which is important that it's last, not first. And so I think it's a great a great investment today to kind of look forward and take a, we'll say from an equity, a lower risk opportunity that the stock could be up, let's say, you know, 25 percent from here to next year. Interesting time to sell Southwest Airlines. Tell me why. Yeah, so I talked about it last month as well. You know, Southwest has been in a channel. And so I've continued, I've traded it three times since April. And so it's been a really good buy in the mid to low 30s and then a sell around 42. And so I've done that three times. And so I bought it after the show last month around 36. I showed it, I sold it yesterday around 42. Um, I definitely want to get back in the stock. That being said, when you're doing a trade, you have to trade for the market you have, not the market you want. And so I think Southwest is definitely going to be the leader. I travel on them every single week, and they call themselves COVID full because they have the middle seats still open. They're actually one of only four airlines not, not that still anymore, has the though. middle seat open. Not anymore. Well that's, as of December, well, that's as of December 1st. And so it's showing you, though, what's important about that. And once again, I sold the stock yesterday at around 4250 What's interesting, though, is after December 1st, they're bringing that back. Why? Because there's more demand. And so I think that, you know, longer term, it'll go higher. But if I get an opportunity to get back in in the, in the 30s, I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And I mean, then that Goldman was the same. Goldman was the same as Southwest. It's in a channel. Buy it below 200, sell it around 212, 213. All right. Good, good stuff. Uh, Kevin O'Leary, you have some interesting energy shorts to tell me about. Yeah, Scotty, I, I don't generally do short positions. In fact, th this strategy was a, a go long uh, um, until I heard the debate last night. So we were looking again at Schlumberger and Chevron to go long. Um, not in OUSA. These names got kicked out. These are not. These got kicked out because of quality concerns over a year ago. Uh, bad coverage on dividend, uh, deterioration return on assets. This is my personal position. And so we had done work on getting long again with these two names. Number one, in Chevron, 
uh, thinking that the sustainability of the dividend was interesting. Even if it gets cut in half, it's twice that of the S&P. And the CEO has said multiple times that they're going to focus on reducing CapEx and redistributing capital back to shareholders. And then also Schlumberger, which is the world's largest oil service company, has been beaten like a stick consistently for the last year. Now, for the first time ever in the debate, and I'm a policy wonk, I listened to it like everybody else, and I heard policy come out of the former vice president. Biden has become very clear last night whether he wanted to or not, I don't know, but I'm sure he regrets what he said regarding fracking, particularly in the Philadelphia suburbs and Pennsylvania and in Texas. That's going to hurt. So here's the investment thesis. Um, a closer election than people think, uh, contested outcome for about five days. The time to buy energy stocks is going to be in the chaos of not knowing whether Biden, who made it clear last night, wants to wipe out the harbor car carbon infrastructure. I mean, I heard it clearly, and I heard it. So I mean, I'm he's, assuming he's, he's going he to is, drop, he, he, has he has maintained, though, he doesn't want to ban fracking. Maybe on federal land is a different story. That's but not he, what I heard last night. Well, I mean, he's, but he said it repeatedly. That's not what I heard. Yeah, well, I think he said it in a different way last night. But look, it's just one trade. So I'm going short these names into the chaos. I, even though I intended to go long, we did the work. And, you know, this morning when we started talking about what happened last night in our own team, I didn't want to waste the work. I said, well, wait a second. If you hate it so much after that debate, let's go short. We'll stay in these names till chaos hits and we'll go long then. It's just a trade. It's one man's idea with his team. I'm telling you, Biden wants to shut down energy in this country, and I think there's an opportunity if you're an investor when you hear that. Okay. I mean, that's your point of view. Uh, Pete's got some interesting moves, too. I'm going to get to those in a second. I know all of you want to hear it, and promise, I promise you, you do. Uh, let me get down to D.C., though. Uh, for Elon Moy, she has some comments, uh, new comments regarding stimulus. Elon? Scott, the president and the Treasury Secretary were just speaking to reporters in the White House and offered a warning about the prospects of another COVID relief deal before the election. The Treasury Secretary saying that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has dug in and that there are still significant differences between the two sides, though he did say that if Pelosi wants to compromise, there will be a deal. Meanwhile, the president said that he does not want a deal that bails out Democratic states. Meanwhile, the president and also saying that he thinks that Pelosi wants to wait until after the election to come to some sort of agreement. This is a different tone than we have been hearing from the Democrats over the past few days. Just this afternoon, this morning, Pelosi was saying that she is still hopeful that something could come together over the next few days, but that she put the onus on the president to bring along the Republicans in the Senate who have been reluctant to accept the price tag of nearly $2 trillion that she has been talking about with the Treasury Secretary. So now it sounds like there is still a lot of finger pointing going on, not as much negotiating as the president says that Pelosi wants to wait until after the election to come to an agreement. Yeah. Scott. All right, Elon, thank you so much for all those good feelings of uh, 24 hours or so ago, but I guess we should uh, have expected it. Coming up, Pete's tracking the uh, options market today. Stay with us for his latest trades. We go to break and check on the S&P sectors. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. 
edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Snap is up more than 50% this week. Options trades, traders are looking for more upside. Pete, tell us what you're seeing. They sure are, Scott. As a matter of fact, this stock has hit 10 separate occasions with bullish activity since the start of October. So very, very incredible amounts of, of, of volume coming in there. This week, they're going after 13,000 of next week's expiring. So October 30th, they're going after the 41 calls. Those calls were going for between 75 cents and a buck and a quarter. Stock was trading just over 40 and a half or so, Scott. So this stock has been absolutely on fire from $26 over to $40. They're also buying 42 and a half calls of next week as well, about 9,000 of those trading. Next, we've got Norwegian Cruise Lines. This is one of those where we've had Carnival, now we've got Norwegian. They're going after next week's expiring 21 and a half calls. And they bought about 3,000 of those calls as well, Scott. Very inexpensive. Those are going for about 20 cents. I got a third one for you because I know we're going to talk some tech. How about Apple? Now, Apple is an extremely active option trading stock. It's almost number one every single day. Averages about 2 million contracts a day. They're buying the deep in the money, but it's interesting. So it's almost like buying stock, but they're going out in November. So this is not just an earnings play. November the 27th expiration date is what they're buying, the 110 calls. They bought an incredible number of those. They spread it off. So I loved what I was seeing here. I already own the stock, as you know. I've owned it forever, but I also own these calls now as well. All right. That's interesting. Um, Owning some Apple calls going into next week. And, And Jim Labenthal, you do have a critical week for big tech. It's not just Apple, it's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Alphabet, it's Microsoft. There's a lot on the table. Well, you just, you just listed about 25% of the market cap of the S&P 500. So there's no way to understate how important it is. You know, all that said, I want to go back to what I just said with Rick Reeder about 20 minutes ago, that you look at Microsoft, you look at Apple, you look at Amazon and Facebook, those multiples of 30, around 30 times forward earnings, those are justified where interest rates are right now. And Amazon, look, I don't own it, and I don't own it because of the multiple, but I don't think that means it's ripe for a fall. There are special things going on there that keep the earnings low. It's the investment that Bezos and company make in those names. So I don't, let me be clear, I don't think these things are going to shoot the lights out uh, next week, but I don't think they're going to bring the market low either. Yeah, Bryn, what do you think is at stake? Are are we making too much of what's at stake? Or is there really, I mean, this is your last run-up now, before the election to get some juice out of the market, perhaps? I think we are making too big of a deal of, we'll say, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google. I mean, these are cash flow. I mean, especially Microsoft and Apple are cash flow juggernauts. I mean, Facebook as well. And so I don't think we're going to have any surprises like you saw with an Intel today. You're going to have the opposite of that. 
as you know, these companies, which work their way really in everyone's portfolio, um, if you own really any index, I think you're going to continue to give, you know, stability to big tech, heavy cash flow names. And I do agree with what Rick Reeder said, is the PE is an interesting data point, but that free cash flow of these companies is really incredible. And so I just think it gives the, the market more of a baseline to go into the election. And if the election gets nervous, people are going to flock back into these, these, these big tech names that are coming out this week. Yeah. Kevin O'Leary, for somebody who owns a lot of these stocks. Yeah, I own them all, and uh, Facebook, probably my largest holding now. Um, one index to think about, the return on the IRR on spending on Facebook, and this includes Instagram, it now represents, you know, this is not published data, this is just my own universe of small cap uh, companies that spend, they're private. Um, we're at 81% now for Facebook uh, for this quarter ends, this final quarter of the year. That's the highest we've ever been. And the reason is, and the other area we spend, the other 19%, remnant cable. So television at night, at, you know, on a remnant basis, we bid on and we auction for that space. And I ask my CEOs, why is it that we are so high on one channel, Facebook? It's the, the geo-locked advertising around specific areas. When you close a store in a small town, you can buy a 100-mile radius worth of ads, very high, 19, 20, 21% return on investment. I think you're going to be quite surprised, Judge, at what happens when you see Facebook numbers. Uh, you know, I, know we, I know they're unpopular now, but Facebook is the reason small businesses in America are alive. Yeah, we'll see. Lots at stake. All right, we'll take another break. We'll come back. We have big calls today on Seagate, on Virgin Galactic and Pulte. Our experts are going to debate those in just two minutes. There are a number of calls you need to know about today. Rahel Solomon chasing those down, and she has that now. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Scott. So Benchmark is upgrading Seagate Technologies to a buy from hold. Price target here goes to 60 bucks, and this is on earnings, margin improvements, and what they expect to be continued strong cloud demand into next year. You can see the stock, however, is negative about 1.5% after lower-than-expected revenue. Pulte Group gets two upgrades, so Susquehanna gives it a positive from neutral. Target goes to $54, and at RBC, the rating goes to outperform from sector perform. Target is $53. RBC is saying buy the recent dip, noting that Pulte remains well-positioned on land and margins to deliver now a fourth straight year in 2021 of greater than 20% return on tangible equity. And finally, Goldman Sachs initiating coverage of Virgin Galactic with a neutral and take a look at that stock, down more than 7%. So analysts do admit that the long-term upside potential could be massive, Scott. But they say there are also significant questions in the near term, namely the long timeline for spaceflight technology and also customer adoption. Yeah. Wow. Big drop. 7%. Rahel, thank you. Good weekend to you. We'll see you next week. More trades are straight ahead. First, though, let's check on some of the stocks hitting new highs today, including United Health, Illinois Toolworks, and Cummins. We're back in just two minutes. Time now for Futures Outlook. The dollar down again and tracking for its third negative week in the past four. Scott Nation's Brian Stutland breaking down that move for us. Brian Stutland, you first. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the dollar here, take a look at what it's doing. It's a stable currency. We have stable interest rates in America. We have innovation here. So I think the dollar kind of maintains itself. If it breaks below 90, I get a little bit more concerned. But it's maintained that channel, really, 90 to 105 for the last five or six years. What I'm more concerned is the rotation of the U.S. dollar into hard assets. Look at the CRB index and commodity index. Wheat, corn, uh, coffee, 
Bitcoin, you name it, those are all exploding to the upside, the rotation into hard assets. That's more of a concern than I am dollar versus another currency such as the yen or the euro. I think the dollar hangs in there for that reason. All right. Scott Nations, you agree? Well, I'm actually a little bit more concerned. I think that the dollar saying something really goofy because Scott's been lower highs, lower lows since the March 20th high. And this is odd because over the past month, 10-year yield here up 17 bips. Uh, while in Europe, it's down seven uh, it's down seven bips in Germany, down five in France. Scott, that should all be helping the dollar. And you know I love to pay attention to a market that doesn't do what is expected. What is the concern? I think Brian is right when he says the market is concerned about inflation. So right now, 91.75 in the dollar index, that's the critical level because that's the low that we made on September 1st. All right, guys, good weekend. We'll talk to you both soon. Coming up, we have final trades. All right, as we get ready to head into the weekend and look ahead to a big week ahead, Bryn Talkington, what's your final trade? Energy stocks are probably going to be under pressure the next couple weeks. Take the opportunity to add to Kinder Morgan, 8% yield. It's going to be a survivor. Um, look for look for inflation next year, and I think energy can do well. Well, yeah, it's been such a terrible trade. Yeah. But Pete, Bryn did mention a name and maybe the only one in the entire space that you like. <laughs> Which name? Kinder. <laughs> KMI. Yeah, that, that is about it. I mean, it's really tough. I actually do own some Chevron as well, so I did hear... Uh, Mr. Wonderful, not so happy with Chevron right now, and I understand. That's a very volatile area, the energy area. There's absolutely no question about it. Scott, my final trade is going to be Micron. We saw some huge call buying in there earlier out in November. I think this is a stock that can rally. It's already done pretty well from what they bought earlier, so I think there's more upside to come. Okay. Mr. Wonderful. Uh, bought some more American Express today, infrastructure stock, recovery story. And I'm starting to see the PayPal, the payment guys, get into Bitcoin Ethereum. Won't be long before the credit card guys do that, too. And Amex would be a big player in that space when, when it comes. All right. I'm sure there's a lot of work to, uh, to do on the ranch this weekend, Farmer Jim. <laughs> Maybe I'll paint something, Scotty, with Sherwin-Williams paint. Uh, they're going to report next week. <laughs> that was cheesy, I know. That's they're going right, to report works. next week. They're 6% off their recent high at 26 times forward earnings. Um, I like this name. All right. Good stuff. Uh, everybody have a great weekend. They're watching stocks are down uh, modestly across the board. We'll see you next week. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.